Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Wink Lawrence on the show today. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. Really happy to be in New York. Well, happy to have you here. When's the last time you were in New York? Last year in February. And what do you see here uh, for the reception for wines from the Jura and Savoie? Because that's really what you're you're known for in a way, although you've done a lot of different writing. It's astonishing. I, I know about it from a distance. I see it online. I see it through social media. But when I walk into a shop or a restaurant and I see the range that is available here, I I still my mouth drops open. And when I speak to wine people and that's what they are fascinated in, it's it's amazing. Really different. Because you don't see that so much in England or uh, you see it virtually not at all in England. Um, it is changing a little bit in London. But you have to be really in the trendy bits of London and, and with the really switched on wine shops and restaurants to see that. And to be honest, I'm spending more and more time in France, especially the last couple of years, because I partly live there. So I'm getting a little out of touch with London, but it ain't New York. So let's place it a little bit for those who may not know. Uh, the Jura and the Savoie are where? Uh, they're in eastern France. Uh, they, well... For a start, the Jura and Savoie are far apart from each other. They are linked together by editors of magazines and books for convenience because they're the two smallest regions in France, and they're very conveniently both in eastern France, and one, uh, the Jura, is northwest of Geneva in Switzerland, um, just about uh, 50 miles east of Burgundy, and the other, Savoie, is just to the south east of of Geneva. And so it's sort of going towards the northern Rhone Valley, to put it in perspective with other great Rhine regions. Uh, and, but, and what are the typical growing uh, conditions and, and varieties in those regions? Well, again, once again, Jura and Savoie are quite different one from another. Uh, but in um, Savoie, I'll start with there. It's... Uh, legitimately a mountain region. Uh, it's in view of the Alps. Uh, there is a certain level of altitude. It's not really high and it's not as high as it used to be in the 19th century pre-phylloxera where they, you know, everything was done by hand and, and they would go very high up. Uh, these days, the altitude in Savoie is rarely above, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to convert meters to feet, uh, 600 meters, which is say 2,000 feet. Uh, most of the vineyards are below that. There's a few exceptions. But there is a likelihood of rain, dramatic rain, at the wrong time. Um, that can happen a lot because of the proximity of the mountains. But you also can get uh, some pretty hot summers in Savoie. Uh, if all goes well with the summer, it's continental. We're a long, long way from the sea. And when you move north to Jura, um, this is also continental, uh, East of Burgundy, I mentioned not that far. The vintages can follow Burgundy. However, they are rainier. 
because the, the summers are rainier, the whole year is rainier, um, because it's closer to the mountains. Uh, but the big thing about Jura that I admit that I'm trying to dispel is that in my view, and I believe also the view of most of the growers in the Jura, Jura is not a mountain wine region. Very simple. The altitude is the same as Alsace. And it is, in most vineyards, not much different to the Premier and Grand Cru of uh, Burgundy, of the Côte d'Or. So we're, we're talking here, oh, I have to do this in meters, but the, we're talking between 250 and 400 meters. So that's about 800 to, oh, uh, 1,300 feet. And how did you first encounter the Jura? The Jura specifically, I encountered because of Savoir, because of this thing that the, that the editors of magazines and books put the two together. I already knew Savoir because I've been lucky enough to have a home in the French Alps, which I've had for 20 years. And before I had that home, I was already working in wine. So it was obvious that I would go and visit Savoir Vineyards. And back in the UK, people got to know that I knew about Savoir. And so gradually people thought, well, maybe I could write about Savoir. And if you wrote about Savoir, you had to write about Jura. So my absolute first encounter, um, that's a lie, actually. I had a first encounter years back where I went to visit the producer Henri Maire um, on the side of a Burgundy trip. But uh, that was many, many years ago. So in I think it was 2000, I was asked to contribute to an encyclopedia, um, the Global Wine Encyclopedia, published in Australia, actually. And uh, the overall wine editor who I'd met said, oh, would you write a chapter on Savoie Jura Bougie? Well, of course I will, but I don't know anything about Jura. So I agreed to do it. It was a very small amount of words and a very small budget. I do not like... Uh, writing about somewhere that I haven't been. And so from my French home, I arranged to spend a day up in the Jura. And it was a very packed day with, with four visits that the local regional organization uh, set up for me, visiting the then presidents, producer presidents of the four appellations, so Abois, Côte de Jura, L'Etoile, and Chateau Chalon. And it was a baptism by fire that day, because although I was, um, shall we say, highly educated in wine, uh, Jura is something beyond highly educated in wine. And it was all new. And what struck you right away? Uh, what struck me right away was the incredible complication of the wine styles of everything about it and and that I was out of any sort of wine comfort zone um the the reds looked like rosés the whites um you sort of sometimes were going towards sherry and then again you weren't and it wasn't quite the same and so not only were you dealing with different grape varieties which I was used to doing for, with Savoie wines and with other mountain wines in particular uh, but also very very different vinification methods and for a tiny region uh, an incredible plethora of wine styles. And who are some of the standout personalities that you started to meet along the trips, the, the Girard that you did take? Uh, in my very early uh, visits, um, that very first one doesn't really count for much, but a couple of years later was when I started regularly going there because I was writing for Wine Report, uh, Tom Stevenson's guide. And then I met Stéphane Tissot of uh, Domaine André and Mireille Tissot very early very, very helpful, outgoing personality. Um, many people in New York know him. His catchphrase is la vie est belle, life is beautiful. And uh, he... It's actually la vie est belle, just to correct you. Okay, of course, la vie no, est belle. Just, Naturellement, la vie people, est belle, you're well, right across. No, a lot of people get it wrong, but it's actually... Yeah, yeah, I, no. I, I get you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and and so Stefan would be talking about you, I know. No, it's yeah. a term of endearment that we have. It's a mutual understanding over Tremener, I think. No, Excellent. I'm, I'm just totally kidding. So then you you encountered his forty some odd uh, bottlings. Yeah, although at those in those days it wasn't quite forty; it was probably twenty twenty five. But that was enough. Um, and I met Jacques Pouffenet. 
And I also met people like um, the owner of Chateau d'Arle, uh, Comte Alain de Laguiche. Uh, never call him Comte, he's just Monsieur de Laguiche, uh, who at the time, my very first visit, was the president of the annual festival of the Percé de Vin Jaune. And uh, I went to see him when he was preparing all this, which meant meaning, meeting the police to control the roads because it's a massive festival. And he took me out to the lunch. He was the first Jura producer to take me out to lunch. And he took me to the motorway service station um, where they have a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> when they have poulet au vin jaune and I, we could share half a bottle of, of his wine, of Chateau d'Alle. And uh, so he was one of the early encounters and a lot of producers I met who actually aren't here in New York, people like Jacques Tissot, who is the uncle of um, Stéphane, and uh, he was one of my, my early visits that I thought was very good. Um, Daniel Dugois, who his wines are just beginning to come in now. And I also met Alain Labbé, who is the, the father of Julien Labbé, of Domaine Labbé. And these were the early people that I met. Um, now we're talking just over 10 years ago. If you were to compare up Jura in terms of the people who live and work there, to other more well-known regions, uh, what would be the difference in terms of how they cultivate in Azura? Uh, the difference is that they are, in general, very, very small estates, even smaller than in Burgundy, and that means they are completely hands-on. And that means you will see Jean-Francois Ganvar, even though he he actually has more employees per hectare than other producers. He is still the one that I saw the other day when we were out there on the photo shoot. He was cleaning off the tractor after spraying his biodynamic preparations. And then as it was like the first sunny day for I don't know how long, he was the one that got on the tractor to work the earth. And that's his pleasure. He doesn't want to come here and do winemaker dinners and so on. That's not his style. Uh, and then you look at Pierre Auvenois, albeit retired. Pierre Auvenois never left uh, the region virtually. Uh, he would never dream of coming out and doing something, and nor would his successor, Emmanuel Wion. They work their vines. They make the wine. Um, mainly the work is in the vineyards, and they get on with things. Now, sure, you'll have Stefan Tissot coming out here a lot, and he is uh, someone that has, is full of energy. And it's true, I see him less on a tractor than others, but I see him out in the vines all the time, controlling his staff, being there, talking with them. They love working with him. And all the estates that are, are important over here, you just see them at one with their vines, with their soil, and not just doing it because I'm there or for the camera. It's it's real. And in fact, they often refuse to see me. You know, they say, we, we just cannot see you because we have to be in the vineyards. And and that's it. Has it been a generational change in just in terms of the level of excitement about Girard wines where there's an older set that's sort of very much doing what they do, and then there's a younger set who's like, oh, wait, you want me to be a world personality? I mean, is there a, a difference in sort of style or age or what's happened? That That's a complicated question. There, there, there are all sorts in the Jura. Just like there are all sorts of wines, there's all sorts of personalities and ages. And some of the older generation are completely and utterly set in their ways, yes, um, only making what in their little bit of the Jura is considered to be traditional wines that may or may not be oxidative. Uh, but uh, you only have to think of Pierre Auvenois, who is in his 70s now and who um, therefore and retired technically since uh, about 15 years ago. Uh, you only have to think of him and, and to say, well, is he old generation in style or new generation in style? But what I will say is that for at least 10 years, there have been younger people coming up in the Jura, um, some of them the sons, very rarely daughters. There are very few women, unfortunately, but um, mainly the sons of, of producers who are taking over and doing new things. But there's also been outsiders who have no background in wine, uh, no family background in wine, who've come into the Jura 
and who are generally of a younger age group and are they're not looking to export initially. I don't think anybody yet has entered into the Jura wine market with a thought to exports. So that's a very, very new thing to export. Um, but, but someone like Brinell was big here and he sort of, uh, you know, did a project from being on the outside and then gained a lot of acclaim in the New York market and then disappeared. Um, I mean, is that a different style than what had happened previously? Brigno is a major exception in, okay. ev in every way. Um, he he uh, jumped on the bandwagon that was Jura and natural wine, and um, he wasn't alone, but the way that he did it, he was alone. And the fact that he's disappeared now and is in Japan is is just very much his style. Now, there are other people out there now arguably trying to emulate him and so on. Uh, it's very, very complicated, but these are tiny, tiny producers. The volumes that they produce are, are just so small. And uh, I still, I, I, I hope, I would like to believe there's nobody actually starting up in the Jura saying, my aim is to export all my wine to New York. Um, I think that would be a very bad thing for the Jura if anybody came and did that. <laughs> but I mean, Poufini exports a lot and Tissot, it's like a lot. It's like 40% comes to the US or something, right? Like Stefan Tissot? Um, Stefan, I don't know. Uh, all I do know is that um, his exports, I'd have to look it up, but f are about maybe 60%. He's very keen to keep what he sells in France and in the local region. He believes that's very important. But I can assure you it's not only the USA that he's exporting to. He exports to 20-plus countries, I believe. So, yes, he's very active, uh, but he also happens to run a domain that is now uh, 50 hectares. That's 125 acres, which is, f by Jura standards, large, and especially for a biodynamically run estate, it is large. Um, so, yeah, Pufne is very different situation. It is Neil Rosenthal that, that um, sought out Pufnay, found him. It wasn't the other way around. I don't even know. Has Pufnay been here? I'm not sure. Uh, not that I've ever seen. And I, I, he just, Neil Rosenthal went to him and he was very happy to cooperate. And uh, he's a very small producer that currently uh, is looking to retirement and very sadly has no successors. And so there's a huge question mark hanging over the future of Pufnay wines. Because historically the wines from the Jura had often been sold locally in France at like a kind of a mail order wine club. Is that is that true? Uh, that's only true for Honoré Mer. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> but that was a fairly large concern, right? Uh, Honoré Mer... Uh, was a very large concern. And in fact, even today, the Henri Mare company is probably the third largest in the Jura. And Henri Mare, the person who, who died in 2003, uh, I never met him. Uh, he absolutely rescued the Jura from oblivion after the Second World War. And you speak to anyone uh, certainly over the age of 40 and any in the wine business in Jura, they, it doesn't matter what they think about Henri Mer wines and Henri Mer, the company, they will always speak with huge respect about Henri Mer, the man. Because Henri Mer, the man, uh, was like this really outgoing personality, full of energy, uh, who came from Paris to take on some vineyards that were his grandfather's uh, as a very, very young man and had sort of energetic ideas, a little bit like uh, perhaps a century before Charles Heidsieck had in Champagne and, you know, said, we're not just going to revive this vineyard that was declining and declining and declining um, and it was declining not just because of phylloxera, but because of uh, mildew in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, the Second World War had a terrible toll on the region, uh, and uh, the it became no longer viable for most people to make wine there. And he just said, look, this was once a great region. We should bring it back. We should replant 
And he had these innovative ways of selling that was, as you said, direct selling. And he just got a sales team together. And uh, it, it's not a, a form of selling that I particularly like, but um, you have to admire the man for, for what he did. Uh, but he also took on, he spent time in California uh, and he took on ideas of mechanization of the vineyards and started planting the vines, widely spaced, planted on flatlands. And so you can imagine that this wasn't really geared to very high quality. Uh, having said that, for Vinjon, uh, he had amazing cellars beneath the town of Arbois and was able to store the barrels there in what at the time was considered excellent conditions for storing Vinjon. And he had the quantity to be able to make large amounts of it and to store it for more than the requisite six years, maybe up to nine or ten before bottling. So, so this man did an extraordinary thing. I don't believe anybody emulated him in the way they sold wine. But it was thanks to him that in the 60s and the 70s, a lot of uh, wine people, wine producers, who at the time were f mixed farmers, they had cows, uh, which produced milk that generally went to make Conte cheese. Uh, they might have chickens, they might have this, they might have that. They might have one or two hectares of vines. And in the 60s and 70s, this is what happened with the various branches of the Tissot family in Montigny-les-Arceaux near Arbois, and also with several others, and including Pufnay, uh, but a ton of others. They just said, look, let's forget the cows, let's forget everything else. Let's do wine and do it as a single thing and let's plant, get some more vineyards and plant more. And so lots and lots of plantings took place in the 60s and 70s. And it was all in the end, thanks to Henri Mer's inspiration. Do we see now an uh, influence uh, coming from those who have either worked in Burgundy or own estates in Burgundy? Uh, in in Burgundy, uh, in the Girard, are we seeing people move in who who have either like Ganavant worked for Jean Marc Marais or people like Marquis d'Angeville, like Guillaume d'Angeville, coming in and and buying plots in the Girard? Is there a, a Burgundian influence moving into the Girard? It's incredibly small. Um, the the Burgundian. When I first started visiting the Girard the people that were working in what was generally cons considered a Burgundian way was Stefan Tissot, who did it off his own bat because he wanted to try and do that. Yes, Jean-Francois Ganvar, who had returned to his father's property and his father wasn't doing anything very exciting with the vines. And yes, he came from Burgundy after 10 years there and said, I want to do the same at home. Uh, Alain Labbé, in conjunction with Julien, his son, who joined him as winemaker at quite a young age, uh, they also decided to do this. And there was another one, which is Jean Riquet, a Belgian, who is a, a negociant in the Maconnais, and he actually took on some vines in uh, in Agua and Côte de Jura. And so he too was going that way. Uh, other producers uh, took on this to a certain extent. But something that was made clear to me fairly early on was that in the Arbois Appellation in particular, it, it was traditional in inverted commas to top up Chardonnay wines. They were actually made not in a Burgundian method as in newish oak, but yes, properly topped up and not made oxidatively. Only the Sauvignon was made oxidatively. Whether it's further south in the main Côte de Jura area towards Chateau Chalon, L'Etoile, and around the town of lons le saunier the tradition always was to make even Chardonnay in an oxidative manner with or without floor or, if you call it floor, yeast, uh, veil influence. That's really interesting because, you know, for me, even with the inner Appalachians, I often think of it as kind of one place, but then it dawns on me that, you know, inevitably, like in Burgundy, there must be some areas of it that are better for white grape varieties or one of the two white grape varieties or red grape varieties. What is the lay of the land? I mean, how should I understand, like, uh, you know, why is Poufany 
uh, particularly good at uh, you know uh, you know certain kind of red wine? Uh, is there a terroir influence that uh, helps that along, or why is Ganavant particularly good at Chardonnay? Is there a terroir influence that we're dealing with there? Um, the terroir is immensely complicated in some ways. Uh, there is a predominant clay throughout uh, with a limestone subsoil. However, the, because of the fact that the Jura Mountains were pushed the, by the Alps, um, the Jura is a mu much older mountain range than the Alpine mountain range. And so when the Alps sprung up, they sort of pushed the Jura to the west towards the Bresse Plain and created a load of folds, which is what made all sorts of different layers of geology. Very complicated. It's my weakest subject is the geology of the place. However, in what is left of the Jura wine region today, and it was uh, 10 times as big before Phylloxera, what is left, which is just from just north of Arbois uh, to south of lons le saunier is, uh, ha has a few outcrops of warmer soils that are gravel outcrops uh, as topsoils, which are particularly suitable for the red grape Trousseau. Trousseau is the most particular of all the grapes in, in the Jura. It really needs to have a warm site. And uh, they're beginning to understand that. Traditionally, and, and still today, the best area is around the village of Montigny-les-Arcieux. This is the village where you will find uh, the various Tissots, Stéphane Tissot, uh, Jacques, uh, his, his uncle, Domaine Jacques Tissot, and another one, Domaine Jean-Louis Tissot. They all have holdings there. Uh, so is Jacques Poufnais there. So is Michel Gaillet, Frédéric Lornay. This is also where um, the Marquis d'Angerville has, has set up, having um, taken over the vineyards of Chateau de Chavan, who was lesser known, uh, but also of Jean-Marc Brignot, whose vineyards he took on. And uh, they, they aren't all in Montigny, but there are plenty of these outcrops that really, really suit Trousseau. Now, when it comes to Pulsard or Plusard, depending which bit you're in, um, the so-called... Uh, Capital Mondial de Plusar, or world capital of, of Plusar in this case, is the village of Poupien, which is just to the south of Arbois. And there you have this incredible uh, bowl of vineyards that are mainly on the famous soil uh, called Marne Grise, grey marne, which is a grey sort of clay. But it isn't all that. Now, it so happens that Pulsar and the Sauvignon grape like the same soil. So bearing in mind that Sauvignon is potentially more valuable as a, as a grape and a potential wine with Vangeon and all the rest, you might ask why on earth wouldn't they all be planted with Sauvignon and not Poussard? Well, that's an economic thing in that uh, because near, historically all the wines were sold in the local region, in the greater region of Franche-Comté, which uh, Jura is part of, uh, people wanted to drink red wine. That's what they mainly drank. Uh, but only two weeks ago, Jacques Poufnet, who, who isn't in Poupillon, but he told me this extraordinary story that I want to share with you about um, some isolated vineyards, which, which there are, uh, where he had proper grey mile, where you would say, well, put Sauvignon there. Well, he had Sauvignon there and there were other people in the same situation. And this is back in the 70s and 80s when uh, vintages were much more hit and miss than they are today. There's been a, a huge climate change effect in the, the Jura as in other places. And uh, he lost all his crop several years in a row because Sauvignon is uh, the most late ripening grape. And uh, the migratory starlings were coming through the Jura at exactly the time when the Sauvignon was ripening. And they just stripped the vines. They didn't even eat most of the grapes. They knocked them to the ground. So they lost all their crop of Sauvignon. And this apparently happened several vintages and people just replanted with Pulsar. 
and and just said, we, we can't have Sauvignon in isolated vineyards. So none of this refers back to your terroir question, but it's a little aside. Uh, going much further south, uh, Chateau Chalon, very famous, uh, has a very complicated geology and the actual designated Appalachian Chateau Chalon vineyards have to have a gray mal there suitable for Sauvignon, which is the only variety for Chateau Chalon, Vin Jaune. But within the same area, there are vineyards designated as Côte de Jura. I didn't actually realize this and uh, I was with the photographer for my book the other day and I had growers telling me, no, 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 that's not Chateau Chalon, that's Côte de Jura, right, right. and this is where we grow Chardonnay, and and no, we we would like to grow Sauvignon there because there's Grey Mile, but when they designated it in 1936, they made it Côte de Jura because of politics and this and that. So you then move further south, and as you get further south, there is more limestone. And so in the southern area, which is where Jean-Francois Ganva and um, Domaine Labbé and uh, up-and-coming tiny producer Boronfos, uh, Peggy and Jean-Pascal Boronfos, uh, all in the same village. There you've got, yes, Marne once again, or Marl, uh, but you also have more limestone outcrops, and you have a lower altitude there, and it's a little bit warmer. And this is where it becomes seriously interesting for Chardonnay, and this is why so many of them are doing Chardonnay and doing terroir-specific Chardonnay because um, there are really two simplifying things ridiculously. There are two main terroir for Chardonnay. There's the more limestone-based one, which gives the more minerally, arguably Chablis-style Chardonnays from the Jura. And then there is the Marle-based terroir, which gives Chardonnays that people believe are oxidative and they're not, they're actually reductive. Oh, okay. Which is a whole nother ball game, which is... So it's like in the same way that people often misunderstand Pulsar, because it's very reductive. Uh, I don't think that's misunderstanding Pulsar. I think that's understanding. Understanding, <laughs> encountering Pulsar. In my, Pulsar. Yeah. <laughs> in my case, yes. That's interesting. So it's actually the soil tipping you off into oxidative... Um, like markers that are actually indicating something else. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so, I mean, you know the subject quite well, and we're lucky that you're writing a book about it, uh, about the Jura. And how did that come about? Uh, that came about uh, mainly because of you guys, the Americans, really, because uh, in the UK there is, even today, only uh, – uh, there's a burgeoning interest, but it's quite a small interest. Whereas um, I discovered uh, now five years ago the interest in the USA in the Jura. I was already writing about it for Tom Stevenson. I knew that there were cliques around the world that that enjoyed Jura wines. It was but going it, somewhere. Well, it was, but it was limited. Yeah. And then I, five years ago, I, I went to California to attend the uh, Professional Wine Writers Symposium in Napa. Um, I had another agenda, I admit. I was sort of promoting winetravelguides.com, which is another venture I've done. Sure, which is a website you have. It is a website. And I sort of went there, and, and it was wonderful having all these open-minded Americans to talk to. I was the only European there. And they said, oh, you know, who are you? What do you do? And I went through all this blurb and wine travel guides. I just sort of, knowing about networking, said, yeah, I do that, but I didn't push it. And then at the end, I would just say, oh, and yeah, I have this obscure speciality. I, I write on, on Jura and Savoir wines. And every single person I spoke to, I had this reaction that went, oh, you know about the Jura? And I went, yes, I know about the Jura. I've been visiting there regularly for five, six years. And they said, we love the Jura. And I went, you do? So you can get Jura over here? And they went, not enough, not enough. Uh, only one or two wines, but we want more and we want to try it. Well, I was, I was completely blown away. I had no idea. And so I went and had a look at some of the wine stores in San Francisco and I spoke to people. And this coincided with when I started to be on various forums, wine forums that were mainly US-based. And I began to contribute and people realized that I knew about Jura and Savoir and they respected Wine Report anyway. And so then Facebook and Twitter happened and I was an early adopter for an English person anyway. And so I became the person that people went to for Jura. 
Well, I've never written a book. I've contributed to a lot of books um, on <laughs> Jura and Savoir. And I have also worked in book publishing. And having worked in book publishing, I said I'd never write a wine book. And uh, I mean working in wine book publishing. And, and why? I said I never would because I knew how limited the sales were and how little money uh, authors get. And as someone that's worked on the research and editing side, I reckon that being paid an hourly rate, which I've been paid, I often earned more than the author did. And I also thought that my speciality subjects were so obscure that really it was too hard. I mean, in years gone by, I spoke to the general editor for the Faber and Faber guides that were taken over by Mitchell Beasley in the UK. And he said to me, well, he said, um, this was actually Julian Jeffs, who is known for Sherry, and a lovely man of a certain age. And he said, well, it would be lovely to do a book on perhaps Jura and Savoie and Switzerland. But he said, uh, you've got to get funding from the regions. So <laughs> forget it, you know, and there weren't going to be any pictures and I'd have to pay to produce a map and Basically, I'd have to do everything for a print run of 2,000 books, and we're talking way before ebooks or anything. Are um, you implying that Julian Jeffs cut you off of financial uh, money so that he wouldn't have competition for Sherry? Absolutely not. <laughs> All right, just making sure where, where we're going with that. If you're, if you're Chateau Chalon, Vinjon, <laughs> no. book was choked off by a competitor. Yeah. I I have never seen these two drinks as competitive. <laughs> just kidding around. <laughs> Although it's a, it's a lovely thought. So um, Vinjon stayed behind the veil for a little longer. <clears throat> it did indeed. And, and then the last couple of years, I just thought, you know, this is getting so big in the USA and not just in the USA, in Scandinavia as well, where they read English, in Japan, where they probably read English better than French, let's say. And what's more, there hasn't even been a comprehensive book on the Jura wine region in French for 15 years. And so I thought I really needed to do it. And uh, I, in fact, last year went again to the Professional Wine Writers Symposium in Napa, this time thinking maybe I can speak to some editors because I thought I needed, a, a, sorry, publishers. I needed a publisher in the US. I knew that no one in the UK would do it. And at the time, I was toying with Jura and Savoie because that's what I thought wanted. And I actually did speak to a rather important publisher, and they actually said, pitch us the idea, but we would only ever consider Jura and Savoie. And, I, and that means bougie as well. And I started to think about it, and I really wanted these publishers to publish my book because they're very well thought of. And then I stopped, and I'm a, I'm a perfectionist, and I thought I'm never going to do it. And what's more, I emailed with them and they gave me the timing. And because of all various stages it had to go through, this book would not have come out. Even if I had finished writing it now, it wouldn't have come out till early 2016 because of the processes it went through. And I just had this thought, I've got to do this on my own and I've got to drop Savoir, drop Bougie, do them later. Absolutely, I want to do them later, no question. And just focus on one area, and the area that's urgent to be done is Jura. And I'd also discovered about crowdsourcing and having a big network by this time of uh, virtual friends from around the world. I thought, you know, maybe I can do it. Maybe I can actually get some finance because having done one major loss-making project uh, in the last decade, I didn't want to do another one. And uh, so that's why I went down the crowdsourcing route with Kickstarter to make sure that I had proper funding to do what I consider to be a proper book. But also it had this subtext that was, let's just be certain that people really do want this book. Because uh, by doing it, it's almost testing the market. And I'm pleased to say that people do want this book, it appears. And was that mostly a cabal of five New Yorkers, or who responded to the Kickstarter campaign? The response was phenomenal. And it, uh, I, I, it's true, I have a big online following. 
and I've been participating in the European Wine Bloggers Conference for several years. So initially, the first few days uh, through Twitter and Facebook and through the people I knew, I had loads of people sharing it. And uh, I had various one I just like to state one person out of the blue that I've never even met who is uh, I don't even pronounce his name right you may know him Luis Gutierrez he's a writer um, from Spain Spain. Uh, and Luis just is a fan of Jura wine and I didn't realize he was and he shared it on a Spanish forum and I started getting all these people from Spain pledging for a book I had, uh, yes, people in the US, and I was. this is where I was expecting it to come from. And people like uh, Chambers Street and Frankly Wines all joined in and started telling their clients, uh, various contacts over here did, and also in the UK. I made the effort and I sent an email out to a big list that I did a bit late, but were people that I'd, because uh, I've done a lot of um, education and entertaining and as well as teaching WSCT and this and that. And I just emailed everybody I thought of. And I really didn't expect a lot from the UK, but everybody sort of came out and did it and supported it. And so it was going here, there and everywhere. And I began to adjust some of the rewards because you're allowed to do that on Kickstarter. Um, And I really did much better than I expected. Um, I I was expecting to do well, but there's always this fear that you might not. You just don't know until it happens. And what do you think about wine books just in general? I mean, is this a... a going to continue to be something that's viable and that's done if uh, publishers are you know basically saying uh, well we have a long schedule and we're not going to give you a lot of money and by the time we release this book the the subject matter may be less popular than it is at this moment um, is, is is online encroaching into the traditional book publishing world or what is, what's your perspective uh, it's Online has definitely encroached, um, but I think that with uh, the niche wine areas, if there has been no niche book, which is the case in Jura, then there is still a possible need for a book. Now, a lot of people ask me, why don't you just do an e-book? And I seriously thought of just doing an e-book. However, I felt that Jura in particular is stunningly beautiful and that people would actually like to leaf through a book with pictures. Now, this isn't going to be a coffee table book, no. But therefore, I think that there is still a market for books, but uh, financially, nobody is ever going to make uh, a fortune or even a living just from books. There has to be other ways of, of, of... making that your own money. And uh, I, I think traditional, produce, uh, traditional publishers have to think long and hard about what they're doing. And I, I don't think they're going to take on specialist books any more than they have done. I don't think that's going to change. Um, so to swing back uh, to the wines for a bit, uh, you, you talked about some of the difficulties we have understanding certain kinds of, of uh, wines from the area. And what would you recommend in terms of how to serve them that I might best get? Uh, uh, what, what would be really exciting to me in the glass? What, what should I be doing? Should I be aging it for a little longer? Should I be decanting it? Should I be considering whether it's red or white? Should I be serving the reds before the whites? What, what, what is the approach? Well, what a big question, Revy. Um, that is uh, totally dependent on whether you've got a natural wine producer from the Jura or a more conventional but perhaps organic wine producer from the Jura. But a uh, huge generalization, ev- the whites need to be served much warmer than you ever thought they should be and the reds should be served much cooler than you ever thought they should be. Um, nearly all of the good wines from the Jura are way better when it's two days down the road, um, which (laughs) doesn't make any sense either. 
they break all the rules. Uh, decanting, of course, helps. Um, I uh, was given a bit of a baptism by fire by a sommelier in France a year or two ago with um, when I ordered a Sauvignon Ouillet, which is the topped-up type of Sauvignon, and it was from a natural producer, and he just put it in a decanter and shook it. And I, I'd never actually seen that personally, but I've actually tried it myself. And yes, it's a way of, of dealing with it. Did it froth up? Or? Um, it was a little bit of a head, not quite mm -hmm. as a pint of bitter, but, um, you know, there was some. But it, it really did help the wine be more approachable. But in, in the Jura, they have a convention of how they, the order that they serve the wines, and they always serve red before white. Um, the reds are very rarely tannic. Um, yes, they've got a big whack of acidity, but, but as have all Jura wines, but very rarely does tannin get in the way. And this way you can segue from red to uh, what they call floral whites, which in our language means conventional whites, in other words, non-oxidative. And then you can focus on the oxidative whites towards the end. And that way, it's a sensible time to do it. Now, where you put the cremant, well, you could put it at the beginning, but you could also put it after the jaune before perhaps moving on to a vin de paille and a macvin. So there are so many different styles, and not every producer works in that way. So, for example, Stéphane Tissot tends to serve the whites first, uh, his terroir-specific Chardonnays, then his reds, and then his oxidatives. But, uh, when we think of Vignon, I think a lot of times people think of them as, as uh, wines that are meant for a very long aging in decades. And certainly there are good examples of that, both in Vinjon and Chateau Chalon. But are, are there Vinjons being made that are more approachable at a younger age? Yes. Um, technically, all Vinjon is able to be drunk and enjoyed on release because release is a minimum of effectively seven years after the vintage anyway. And where uh, I had I had a conversation about this with Laurel Mackler the other day. Um, I, I knew Laurel Mackler's father, Jean Mackler, quite well in the early days. And he always was very strict and said, uh, you shouldn't open my Chateau Chalon before at least 10 years after release. So that means about 17 years from vintage. So I asked Laurel Mackler the other day, his son, I said, so are you following your father in this advice? And he said, well, mm, yes, no, maybe. Uh, he said, they can last that long, but there's no harm in opening them now and you're still going to enjoy them, but they are going to last. And they also go as many wines do as in the Loire, for example, they go up and down in phases and they have a close. So soon after bottling, they might be good for a year or two, then they'll close down for a few years. And But my feeling is that you'll never get a disaster. Uh, the most important thing returning to your previous question is that you serve a vin jaune at a warmish temperature. And so uh, in Fahrenheit, say around 60, something like that. Um, uh, and that uh, you preferably open it long ahead, but, but leave it at that temperature. And you could decant it, but actually it doesn't make nearly as much difference as just leaving it open. And it does seem like natural wine, uh, you know, has, or some forms of it, have made a, a big uh, uh, play in the Jura, and, you know, as it has in Beaujolais, certain areas and in the Loire. Uh, why why did it set forth there and not in other places? Is that a function of economics or a function of climate or a function of personalities that are there? Or what do you observe in terms of the movement of, of natural wine into the Jura? Uh, some of it's all of those things. Um, so in terms of personality, Pierre Auvenoir is, is considered by many to be the father of natural wine a father of natural wine, and he happens to be in Poupillain in the Jura. And so he influenced other people. He influenced Bonnard, for example. 
and other people looked at what was happening. But at the same time, you had Stefan Tiso, who converted to organics very early, um, Domaine de la Pinte, who are, are less known here, they also converted to organic very early. Um, Domaine Pinier, who I'm pleased to say are, are now here, they also converted. Uh, in fact, they went straight from conventional to biodynamics, which was also adopted by Stefan Tiso quite some time ago. So there were various things happening on the vineyard front, um, as well as this sort of big personality of, of Pierre Auvenois, although, in fact, he's not a big personality. He's a very humble man. Um, but he was there and he had his, you, you have to call them disciples. So these two things were running parallel. Uh, there's also the question of the soils there, which are very heavy, uh, clay soils and a very potentially wet climate. And the soils can be damaged very easily by using a lot of machinery and a lot of herbicide and all the rest. Uh, I know that biodynamics and, and working the soil has been very big in Burgundy. Arguably, the, uh, it is even more important to look at that in the Jura. So today we have a situation where Jura has um, officially around 15% of organic vineyards, which is quite high. I'm sorry, that's English quite. Um, rather high. <laughs> rather high. The bitter part was probably the most English coinage so far. Oh, well, well, not as much froth as a pint of bitter. <laughs> I, I let it go at the time. But, oh, well, uh, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. I mean, if um, we were to for being you know, generous well, with, with this, know, this faulty, faulty No, no, language. no. You, you had it first, you know, <laughs> as it were. Yeah, maybe. Um, so they, 15% uh, is organic, and that is, I think, about the fourth highest in France after Languedoc, Provence, and Alsace, which, considering it's a wet and difficult climate, prone to mildew and all the rest, that's pretty incredible. So as far as the natural side goes in the winery, um, there is the other fact that if you're making oxidative wines specifically, so Vinjone and the other um, oxidative Sauvignons and sometimes Chardonnay and sometimes blends, you actually need less sulfur dioxide and less intervention than, than you would in conventional topped-up wines. That's always been the case. So all these things join together to make this, uh, and, and they join also with the fact that outsiders perceive the Jura to be this terribly authentic, uh, small place, which is correct up to a point. Small, yes. Authentic, well, that depends on the producer. And there are plenty of um, people that... that use and abuse chemicals. Um, there are also plenty of people that are not organic and not natural that are doing absolutely a fabulous job and respecting the environment. They just might use herbicide once in the year. They might use uh, a particular spray once in the year, uh, but they have huge respect for the environment. And of course, they use SO2 in a small controlled way. And, of course, they chapterize in a difficult year when they need to, and they do some filtration, but they probably don't fine. And uh, there is something of everything in the Jura, and yet I think that what appears on the New York market in particular, but export markets in general, are more a much weightier number of the, um, of the organic and the natural people. So we have talked a lot about the New York market, but uh, how has the Japanese market affected mm. uh, Jura? Because I remember when Overwall got put on the cover of that wine magazine in Japan, it became a much harder to find in New York. Uh, I honestly don't know that much about it. I just know that I have heard that the Japanese um, are really big freaks for natural wine. 
and that they zoned in on Pierre Auvernois and therefore, because you can't always get his wine, they're looking at others that are following in that way and so on. And I also want to mention that there is a Japanese producer in the Jura now that um, has set up uh, in the area that's called the Sud Revermont, very close to Jean-Francois Ganva, that's given him uh, a real leg up, uh, Kenjiro Kagami. I hope I've got that right. Um, and uh, he's just done his second vintage. 11 was his first. And uh, so very brave guy that worked in Alsace and Burgundy before and has started with his wife with nothing, you know, renting renting a property, renting vines and so on. There, there isn't the money sloshing around the Jura that people might think there was. <laughs> and what is the place for oxidative wines at the table. I mean, when is it that I should be opening them and how if I have my seven in that's, um, you know, oxidative in style? What, what should I be eating with that? Well, the classic accompaniment is Conte cheese. And uh, it is an extraordinary revelation if you have a good Conte and maybe some walnuts as well. Uh, it is the best introduction to enjoying um, a, an oxidative Sauvignon that I can think of. But it also works with classic sauces as they use with, uh, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's poulet au vin jaune. But you can take the sauce that is used for poulet au vin jaune, which is a white wine sauce, ideally made with an oxidative white wine. But even that doesn't matter as long as you finish it with a glass of preferably vin jaune right near the end of cooking. And it, it doesn't need much cooking. And if you have moral mushrooms as well, I think you, you get them here, we I do, imagine, yeah, at yeah. least dried and bottled and so on. And uh, it, there, it is this magic combination that you can have with chicken, you can, you can have with, with trout over there. They, they do, and they, they even do um, a moral... Uh, moral as in mushrooms <laughs> a, uh, sort of just a morals Very in a sauce with a absolutely an upstanding dish in pastry um, which is incredibly rich and I know because I had it and suffered all night the other day um, but it is just delicious to have these rich sauces with oxidative wines but in the region itself, you've got some innovative chefs, especially in Arbois and in Dole as well, which is just in the north, who are working with uh, spices a lot. And they uh, talk about, uh, there's this wonderful French word, which uh, you may or may not recognize, which is curry, uh, which we might call curry. But curry <laughs> means something completely different in the minds of a French person than it does in the minds certainly of an English person and I would say American English too in that it's a mixture of spices that include ginger and fenugreek and various others coriander and, and cumin and so on and uh, in France in any supermarket you just buy this bottle of, of spice mix that, that says on it curry and Chili doesn't come into it, so it's not hot. So if you see a sauce au curry, <laughs> it isn't a hot sauce. It's a spicy sauce. And so these chefs are working with these spices, which go incredibly well with uh, these oxidative flavors. And coming back to Japan, it, they've also done some experiments with Japanese cuisine uh, to, and also Thai to try and match those two. So that's another reason why the Far East is interested in these wines. And when might we see your book about uh, the Jura uh, published? Well, I've sort of promised 385 people who um, kicked into the project that it would be there for April next year. So that's the plan. So, Wink, tell me, where should someone go if they wanted to learn more about the book or about your other writings online? Uh, well, I, I have uh, several websites, but for Jura specifically, I have very simply jurawine.co.uk. So just remember it's .co.uk. 
And that's a blog on the Jura, but also with a lot of links in the About section to stuff I've published already. And generally on me, I have a sort of CV type website and a blog where I cover Savoir and anything that crosses my mind, which is winetravelmedia.com. Thanks, Wink. Thank you. Wink Lorge, uh, a wine writer who is doing a fabulous book on the Jura, which will be released next year. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that P O D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.